0: Good morning. Good to see you all here this morning. Thank you for gathering with us for our time of worship. And uh, we invite you to turn to Romans chapter 12 if you're not there. Today we move from the doctrinal portion of the book of Romans to that which is the application of that doctrine. Oftentimes in the word of God we have the doctrinal sections of various epistles and then followed by what is often referred to as the practical or applicational section. What are we to do with the doctrine that uh, we have learned? The thought of this morning is, how are we to live in light of all that has been revealed concerning the person of God in these first 11 chapters of the book of Romans? How are these truths to affect our life? What is the proper response And this morning we learn that the response that we are to have is to be completely and unreservedly devoted to God. So this morning we are going to consider a call to give ourselves completely and unreservedly to God. That call is found in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I'm actually only, only going to deal with verse 1 this morning. I will deal with verse 2 next week. We want to look at this call and uh, we are going to tear this verse apart, and we begin by number one, looking at the recipients of the call to be completely and unreservedly devoted to God. Notice Romans 12:1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The call is a call to believers, For it says in verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. So why is such a simple observation important? Well, it's important for a number of reasons. First, it teaches us that this call is not a call to salvation. This is not a call to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. For it is brothers that are being referred to. So this is a call to believers. And as a call to believers, it is relevant to each and every one of us here this morning who has made a profession of faith. Rarely do we have the opportunity to preach a sermon that is naturally applicable to everyone who is sitting in the congregation. If you're Talking about marriage, you recognize that you have single people in your congregation. Rarely is there a passage that immediately applies to every single individual. But this passage does. This applies to us no matter what our marital status is, no matter what our economic condition is, whether you're rich or whether you're poor whatever your ethnicity is, whatever your background, whatever your intellectual status, whatever your position or situation in life, no matter what your age is, if you're only three or you are 93, it doesn't matter. This verse applies to us. This verse applies to you. The tone of the call to be completely and unreservedly devoted to God, is a tone of compassion. Notice the call is not in the form of a command. This is not a command. The call is warm, I said compassionate, and also passionate. The call is heartfelt, and imploring of believers to respond favorably to Christ's authority. Notice Romans 12, verse 1. He says, I appeal to you. King James translates that, I beseech you. The NAS translates it, I urge you. It is Paul's earnest, sincere, authentic desires that believers would fully commit themselves to God. Not a command, but an urgent plea. Notice the basis of the call, to be completely and unreservedly devoted to God. The basis of the call is the abundant mercy of God. Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brothers, and now here's the basis of the call, by the mercies of God. And I would point out to you that the mercy of God in this verse is plural. The mercies of God. First, it is plural because it speaks of the repeated demonstration of God's mercy. God's mercy is not once and done. God's mercy is not demonstrated to us on simply one occasion. God's mercy was not shown to us simply at the time in which he saved us. But God's mercy is repeatedly demonstrated to each and every one of us. We are constantly drawing upon the mercy of God. It's being repeated over and over and over again in our lives. We are repeatedly experiencing God's mercy. Not only is it repeated, but may I say that it is an endless mercy of God upon us. And then secondly, the plural also speaks of the magnificence, the richness, the fullness of God's mercy. There there is a depth of God's mercy. I'm thankful for that song that we sang this morning about the mercy of God pastor Dave, in his Sunday school, spoke uh, eloquently about the mercy of God. This mercy is a mercy that continues to build upon itself <clears throat> like uh, a story upon a story upon a story that god's mercy is sown the therefore, in this verse, where it says in verse one, "I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, points us." back to something that has already been taught us concerning God's mercy. The therefore draws our attention to what precedes it. So let's go back to Romans chapter 11. If you just turn the page over. What do we learn about God's mercy? We find out that God's mercy was given to us in the time of our disobedience. Look at Romans 11, starting with verse 30. Romans 11:30. 30. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So the mercy is connected with disobedience. It's important for us to make some distinctions Between what are um, many times viewed as complete synonyms in the Word of God. They are synonyms, yes, because they carry many of the same ideas, but they all have a different nuance. There's a difference between grace and mercy grace is unmerited favor, grace is a goodness that is given, that is undeserved, but it says nothing about the condition of an individual. If I had $100 bills this morning and passed them out to every single person that was here, that'd be gracious. You didn't deserve it. i just hand it to you. But it doesn't say anything about your condition. You could be poor and receive the $100 bill, or you could be a multimillionaire sitting here and I'd still give you a $100 bill. It says nothing about the condition. Grace is unmerited favor. Mercy speaks of the condition. Mercy speaks of the misery, the heartache, the pain that someone is in. So... Mercy is giving to a homeless person $100. Mercy is giving someone who's in great debt $100. Mercy is recognizing somebody's difficult, deplorable, horrible situation, and therefore handing them $100. That's mercy. In this passage, the emphasis is on God's mercy, how he has compassion, how he cares for us in the midst of our disobedience. Oftentimes when we think about disobedience, we think of the reaction of God in terms of his holiness and of his purity. And we think about what our disobedience means to him. How it offends him. How it is worthy of of his wrath. How it is unbecoming to God. But in mercy, the focal point is not God himself himself The focal point is us, the sinner. And as God has mercy upon us in our disobedience, he's thinking about what this disobedience means for us. What are the consequences of our disobedience? What is the outcome of our disobedience? And it's our misery. It's our heartache. Sin produces all kinds of catastrophic consequences in our lives. And as God looks upon us in our disobedience, he has mercy. He pities us. He wants us to not experience those consequences, those miseries, those heartaches. He wants us to know joy. He wants us to know peace. He wants us to know his forgiveness. He wants us to experience deliverance. He wants us to overcome our sin. He has mercy upon us. The call, then, is a response to God's mercy. What should our response be to God's mercy? Our response should not be one of continued disobedience. Notice Romans 11.32, for God consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy upon all. The proper response to give To God is our wholehearted devotedness to God. In the scriptures there are numerous reasons given for us to consecrate ourselves fully to God. There are a number of reasons or bases that we have in giving ourselves to God. For example, one such motivation to give ourselves to God is that literally we owe it to God to consecrate, dedicate ourselves fully to him. We owe it to God. 1 Corinthians 6.19 and following says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not with your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Why glorify God in your body? Because you're not your own. Because he... You belong to him. He bought you. You are his slave. You are his servant. Therefore, you should give yourself wholly devoted to God. That is not the basis of this verse. The emphasis is quite a different one. It's a voluntarily giving of ourselves to God. In our text, the motivation to consecrate ourselves to God is not because we have to, but because we want to. It is not to pay God back for what he has done for us, but rather it's an expression of our love and appreciation of what he has done for us. Look again at Romans chapter 11, starting at verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom. And knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? And now this, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? People, there is no way for us to repay God for what he has done for us. There is no gift that we can give to him that is anywhere comparable to the giving of his son. There is no sacrifice that we can make that can, any way, begin to to match what God has done for us in his great mercy and grace. So, when we are serving God, we are not paying him back. All right? We, We are not in any way making him richer, or fuller, or deeper than what he is. So it's not a call to serve God in order to pay him back for what he has done in saving us. Rather, it is a call out of a love that appreciates his mercy that calls us to respond to, to God in giving him ourselves. We can compare it under a marriage ceremony. A marriage ceremony. Uh, how many have heard the term shotgun wedding? Okay, you know what a shotgun wedding is? That's when you're forced into a marriage. That's when, for whatever reason, um, you feel obligated, duty-bound, enter into this, this wedding, there's a shotgun held at your head, all right? and you have to marry this individual. I hope your marriage was not a shotgun marriage. I don't think very, very many marriages are. Marriages are, a, are two people that are giving themselves wholly and completely to each other, not because they have to, because they want to. They love that person. They appreciate that individual. They trust them. They want to be with that individual. They bring joy and delight to their hearts. They don't want to be apart. They want to be together. They love the individual that they are committing themselves to. This is a verse that is calling us to commit ourselves to God, not because we have to, because we want to. Because we love him. Because we want to give ourselves wholly to him. We want to experience him in the fullness of his glory and of his grace. So it's a call to give ourselves to God out of result of his mercy. The essence of the call is to be completely and unreservedly devoted to God. So what is it that we're actually called to do? Notice verse 1. I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to do what? This, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Let's tear that apart. The first thing that we note in this call is we're to offer up a sacrifice to to God. The word present, present your bodies, means to offer up a sacrifice. It is a priestly word. It was what the priest did when, as I said, he offered up a sacrifice in the Old Testament. He presented it to the Lord. He offered it to the Lord. When we think of an offering, it is presented. It's offered. It is given to the Lord. And so the thought is that we are engaging in a priestly function. 1 Peter 2.9 says, but you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim his excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we are to be offering sacrifices. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, it says, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, the acknowledging of his name. So, one of the sacrifices that we offer is the sacrifice of praise. And we heard a lot about that in Sunday school if you're here this morning. We offer up our sacrifice of praise unto God. Just as priests offered up a sacrifice in the Old Testament we're to be priests offering up a sacrifice in the New Testament. When we're coming before God, we are to be coming with a sacrifice. And the sacrifice that is in view in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, is our bodies. Notice 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That is, we're to serve God with our bodies, with our complete self. In Romans chapter six, it said, "Do not present your members." That's referring to your bodily parts: your arms, your hands, your feet, your ears, etc. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of righteousness, but Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members, your arms, hands, feet, etc., to God as instruments for righteousness. We're not to use our bodies to commit sin, we're to use our bodies to commit acts of righteousness. Thus, we yield our bodies to the service of the Lord, our hands, our feet, are consecrated to God, which then says the sacrifice, the word offer is described as a living sacrifice. In the Old Testament, when a sacrifice was offered, that sacrifice was to be killed or slain. The life of the sacrifice would be ended. Blood would be poured out. But we're to offer a living sacrifice. That is, we're not to slit our wrists. We we are not to shoot ourselves in the head we are not to lie down dead before God, but rather we are to present ourselves as dying to ourselves, but living unto God. We are to no longer be serving our own selfish interests, but now dedicating ourselves to the interests of God. We're not pursuing our agenda, we're pursuing God's agenda. In a living sacrifice, That which is to be sacrificed is no longer to be living for oneself, but rather living for God. The life of selfishness comes to an end, and the life of full commitment to God is to be entered into. It's described as a holy sacrifice, meaning sanctified, set apart for God and his use, dedicated, consecrated to God. That does not mean that every one of us here this morning has to go into quote full time unquote service for God. That doesn't mean everybody needs to be a pastor. It doesn't mean that everybody needs to be a missionary. It doesn't mean that everyone needs to serve God in a professional sense. But it does mean that every one of us here this morning should view ourselves in whatever occupation we find ourselves in, whatever our <coughs> situation is that. We are living for God. And we are performing this job to his honor and his glory. And we are watching over our eyes, our ears, our feet, our hands, so that what we are doing are those things which further God's glory. So we're living righteously as we teach. We live righteously as we are a carpenter. We live righteously as we drive the school bus that we are speaking truth that we are demonstrating acts of love and kindness we are purposefully giving ourselves over to God so in that sense we are all full time in our dedication to the Lord it means that we don't decompartmentalize that we don't compartmentalize our lives into spiritual and sexual and uh, spiritual and Uh, secular that there is no secular part of our life that everything we do whether you eat or drink or whatever you do do all to the glory of God constantly every moment living under his authority recognizing his lordship in our lives our sacrifice is described as acceptable in chapter 12 verse 1 a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable. In the Old Testament, a lamb that was to be offered was to be without spot or blemish. It must have no defect. It was to be pure before God. Because of the blood of Lord Jesus Christ, our bodies have been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ so that we are now pure. We are now Holy we are now acceptable. The scripture says without faith, it's impossible to please God. But you and I are now in a position where we can please God. All our righteousnesses, all our works before we are saved are as filthy rags. God does not accept any of them. The only thing that can remove our sin is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. But once we accept the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, now our acts of obedience, our acts of goodness are acceptable to God. For they have been made clean and pure by the blood of Christ. Now we can come and offer ourselves unto him. Now we can bring our works. Now we can bring our righteousness, our goodness, our deeds. Now we can live for him in a way in which he looks at us and says, well done, thou good and faithful servant Enter into the joy of the Lord. The book of Revelation speaks of those that have died and their works do follow them in which he gives them praise and uh, a reward for how they have lived their lives. Note the rationale for the call to be completely and unreservedly devoted to God. This living sacrifice of our bodies is true worship. Notice verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God... Present your bodies as living sacrifice and holy acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship. Your spiritual worship. The word for worship here is literally the word for service. Uh, there are many erroneous connotations of what worship is. Worship, according to the word of God, is service. Is service. Worship is serving God. We gather together this morning and we refer to what we are doing as a worship service. A worship service. For worship and service cannot be separated from each other. In our particular day and age, we have come to identify worship solely with singing. Uh, We talk about worshiping the Lord, now we're going to sing. In our bulletin, we seek to stress that worship is much more than just singing. And so, with purposeful intentionality, we refer to worship in song, worship in prayer, worship in giving, worship in the word, worship in response. All of those things are an aspect of worship. But the ultimate act of worship is to be found in the giving of ourselves to God. That is your true worship. Okay, that's when you really recognize who God is and what His position is and what is our duty before Him. The response is to give ourselves to Him. That is the ultimate manifestation of worship. When we're not presenting a lamb, we're not presenting a bull, we're presenting ourselves. In saying, we give ourselves to you. Worship comes from an Old English word. Our English word worship comes from an Old English word, which is worth ship. W O R T H S H I P. And worth ship has been subsumed with the word worship. But it is worthship in recognizing his worthiness. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive honor and glory and praise. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are created. To say that, that God has created all things, and for thy pleasure they are created, to pronounce him worthy, then he's worthy of me. For he has created me and has created me for his pleasure. And so when I worship him, I give him myself. God is worshiped with our words, God is worshiped with our songs. We read from uh, Hebrews. 13:15 Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips to acknowledge his name. That is an important part of our worship. But notice the word part. That's not the culmination. That is not the true essence, the true embodiment of worship. Notice that word embodiment. The embodiment of worship is our bodies. We don't just give him our lips. We give him our hearts. We give him our minds. We give him our hands. We give him our feet. We give him our our knees. We give him our whole being. It's referring to all of our actions. All of our deeds. All of our energies. You see, it's so easy to talk a talk but not walk a walk. It's so easy to sing of how God is Lord of all things and then go out and live any way that we want to. That's why he says that worship must be in spirit and in truth. God is not worshipped simply by believing right doctrines. Nor is God worshipped through good intentions. God is worshiped in our actions and our deeds, in the manner in which we live our lives, in our obedience to God's word. God is worshiped in the consecration of ourselves to God. It is when we are not using our bodies for sexual immorality but we're using our bodies with pureness. It's when we are using our hands not to steal or to take, but we use our hands to work hard and to give to the poor. It's the presenting of our bodies to God. This living sacrifice of our bodies is not only the essence of true worship, but it is only reasonable. If you look at Romans chapter 12 verse 1. The uh, ESV translates this. Which is your spiritual worship. The King James. Translates it. Which is your reasonable service. Your reasonable service. Uh, I prefer the King James. Translation. For the word spiritual there. Isn't what we usually think of the word Spirit, it's actually an accounting term. It's a legal term. It is reasonable in an accountable sense, meaning that it adds up. It's the logical conclusion. It's when we are, have arrived at the full understanding, it is the reality of what we profess about Christ, that He is Lord, that Christ rules over all things. It's so easy to say that Christ is Lord and then to live as though He is our servant, as though we don't have any obligation or duty before Him, that we are not responsible to carry out every command, every detail of His word that He has given us as how to live. That he doesn't tell us, that he doesn't have the right to tell us what to do or or how we should perform. The response of giving ourselves wholly, unreservedly to God is simply a response that makes sense. It's reasonable. Turn with me back to Romans 11, starting in verse 33. Oh, I'm at Romans 11, 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Now verse 36. For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever, amen. So let's unpack that for a moment. Verse 33, we profess that God is full of knowledge and wisdom. Verse 33, oh the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways, how magnificently wonderful is God's knowledge. And we proclaim it. We sing it. Verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? But do we sing of his infinite wisdom? And then in our prayers instruct God and tell him what he should do? How he should bless us? What is right and appropriate for us? And what is inappropriate for us? Do we stand in judgment over his word? Do we say, well, I can't accept that. I can't believe that. Certainly God can't do that. The point is, there's to be no dichotomy. We are to say, God is all wise. And then we are to recognize that wisdom in our own lives and then seek to live out that wisdom. To seek to understand what God's word says. And believe that it's better than anything else that there's no other form of counsel, there is no other source of wisdom that's greater, and certainly not ours. We profess that all things come from him, verse 36, for from him are all things. And we say that when we say grace. We acknowledge that everything has come from God, but then we also worry about tomorrow. And we worry about our provision. We worry about what's going to happen when we retire. We worry about whether or not we're going to have enough food for this or for that. The worry is inconsistent with our proclamation that all things come from him. Not only that, we profess that that all things are enabled by him, verse 36, for from him and through him. And we profess that everything is to further God's cause. All things are from him, through him, and to him, meaning that they are to be dedicated to him. Everything belongs to him. Romans says that our doctrine, our thoughts, our words, our praise must be lived out. They must be absorbed. They must be transforming. We are to give ourselves to being what God calls us to be. And then it says at the end of verse 36: to him be glory forever and ever. The glory that is given is not in word only. It's not this we say. Oh Lord, you are glorious. Yes, we're to say that. But then we're to be concerned that He indeed receives glory. that other people glorify Him. Psalm four, the psalmist prays, "O oh Lord, have merciful, be merciful unto me. I stand in need of you. God says, oh, ye sons of men, how long will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love vanity and seek after falsehood? How long will you take my goodness and make it a reproach to me? My glory, my forgiveness, my grace, and you trample it under your feet in your disobedience and your are turning away from God. Matthew 5:14 says, "Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven." What glorifies God is our good works. It's what separates us from those around about us. We love Ephesians 2:8-9: "For by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourselves; it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." But verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God before had ordained that we should walk in them. It's our works that glorify God. It's in that difference, so that our neighbor may lie, but we tell the truth. We keep our word, we give our employer a good day's labor. We don't curse with our mouth. We speak of God's goodness. We don't show hatred to others. But we forgive our co-workers. We treat them with compassion and with pity. We're not arrogant and proud. But we're humble and recognize the gifts that God has given and the abilities that he has provided. We say all things are from him and through him. And we live that out in our daily reactions with one another. It is logical. It is the appropriation of everything that we say that we believe and that we ascribe to God. So the conclusion is really simple. That is, number one, as a believer, have you ever made a conscious commitment to God in which you devote yourselves in every respect to serve him? Have you ever said, I'm going to use my body not just to fulfill my sexual desires, not just to fulfill my lusts, not to just do do what I want with my body or to enjoy whatever I want to enjoy. But I'm gonna give my my body over to God. I'm I'm gonna live a life of purity that he calls me to live. I'm gonna react in my marriage the way in which he tells me I need to react. I'm going to do more than just talk about godliness. I'm going to be godly. Because he has enabled me to do that. Because he has saved me. Because he has enabled me. Because he has delivered me. Now, not perfectly. Perfectly. But I can be so different from what I once was. And so the the scripture describes it as a new creation. Being born again. It's a totally new me. From what I was. From what I am now. And so we thank God. That we aren't what we once were. And we further acknowledge that we aren't what we're going to be. But in this intervening period, I am going to be all that I can be for God. I'm not going to hold anything back. I'm not just going to talk about spiritual things. I'm going to be spiritual. I'm not just going to worship God in what I say. I'm going to worship God by going out of here living a life that demonstrates his lordship. That says, I'm under his authority. I follow him. I live for him in all things. And if you have made that commitment this morning, I invite you to renew that commitment. For... It needs to be and renewed constantly. Day by day, take up your cross daily and follow him. Each day, we must say, "God, I am going to live for you this day. Live for you. Not just talk about it, but do it. Let's pray. Almighty God, I prayed you would help us this morning. To live for you. And I pray that you would do a work in each of our, our lives. And even as Paul urged, employed, besought, Lord, we desire that each of us would worship in spirit and truth, not just in our words, which is so easy. Your word says they praise me with their lips but their heart is far from me. Oh Lord, may our hearts be in tune with our lips. May our hands and our feet and our bodily parts be in tune with what we say about the lordship of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us To make our bodies a living sacrifice, dying unto our own ambitions and desires, and yielding ourselves completely to what your word teaches us to live and conduct ourselves. For you are worthy. We want to glorify you. We want to show forth the transforming power of your grace and your mercy. We do this not because a shotgun is held to our head. We do this because it's reasonable. It's logical. It's just the right response to who you are. Help us to love you and desire to please you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.